It's 2010. The Supreme Court is hearing the infamous case that decided elections law in the United States, Citizens United versus the Federal Elections Commission. You'll often hear political candidates cite the case when talking about how campaigns are funded and thus sometimes unjustly balanced. This is Everything Explained, a podcast dive into the common issues discussed in the media. This week, we'll attempt to break down the complexities of the Citizens United decision with WAMC programming intern, Stefan Lembo-Stolba. Tragically, and I say these words advisedly, we are well on our way to seeing our great country move toward an oligarchic form of government where virtually all economic and political power rests with a handful of very wealthy families. Citizens United is a part of that process, and that is a trend we must reverse. Recognize that voice? That was Senator Bernie Sanders speaking about Citizens United, a Supreme Court decision that helped define modern campaign finance. Sanders made campaign finance the focal point of his 2016 run for Democratic presidential nominee. His recent opposition to corporate involvement in politics and his enthusiasm for campaign finance reform forced Citizens United into the forefront of public attention. So what exactly was Citizens United, and how has the decision influenced our electoral system? To find out, we spoke with Michael Malbin, the executive director at the Campaign Finance Institute in Washington, and Richard Brafault, professor of law at Columbia University Law School. First, Brafault. Citizens United was a case decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2010, uh, in which the court struck down a federal law which had been on the books since, I think, 1947, which prohibited corporations from spending money supporting or opposing federal candidates. Citizens United technically overruled a case called Austin v. Michigan Chamber of Commerce, which in 1990 said that corporations should not have the right to spend in political campaigns with equal rights to those of individuals, individuals like you and I. In 1947, the Taft-Hartley Act said the same thing, banning corporations and unions from making expenditures in or contributing to federal elections. So in 2010, Citizens United overturned precedent that had been active for over 60 years. Now to Malbin. The, the actual decision was that corporations have the same right as individuals to make independent expenditures in support of or opposition to candidate in, a, in an election. That reversed previous decisions. It also expanded on a rule that had existed since 1978 that said the same thing about corporations speaking in referendums. With Citizens United, corporations now have the same spending rights as individuals in elections. But what rights do individuals like you and I actually have? Let's start in 1976, when the Supreme Court, in the case Buckley v. Vallejo, defined the difference between independent expenditures and independent contributions. Berfault. So when the Supreme Court has looked at uh, campaign finance regulations, the first thing the court said is that money spent in connection with elections is protected by the First Amendment. They didn't say that money is speech, but they said that money is very closely connected with getting the speech out there, with disseminating it, with preparing the speech and communicating the speech. And so if you restrict the use of money, you are at the very least indirectly and sometimes directly uh, restricting communication. So therefore, there is going to be real First Amendment review of any law uh, that affects campaign money. So basically, 
Money spent or contributed in elections is a form of speech and thus should have protections under the First Amendment, meaning it would be a violation of our First Amendment rights to restrict how you and I spend our money in elections. But then the court said there are really, you know, the court then said there's this distinction between expenditures and contributions. Um, the court said that expenditures are in some sense a higher form of speech because the expenditures involve the direct communication of arguments and ideas, ads, advertising to the public. So that's a direct statement to the public. That's closer to pure speech, whereas a contribution is me giving money to a candidate or a committee giving money to a candidate. The candidate's the one who's going to engage in the speech. Uh, not the, 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 the giving the donation does have a speech element. It says, I support you, but it doesn't say any more than that. It doesn't give ideas. It doesn't give arguments. And, and $10,000 may not say, I support you any more than $1,000. It may, it may be as much a reflection on how wealthy the donor is. So the court said um, expenditures in the sense of communicating with, with the voters is a more highly protected form of speech than contributions. Although spending in elections deserves First Amendment protection, the court said that expenditures, or monies spent for or against a candidate, should be unrestricted, whereas money contributed directly to a candidate should be limited. Here's Malbin on why. In the Buckley decision, 1976, the one that was the first test of the federal election campaign amendments of 1974, the court said that Congress may not limit independent spending by individuals. Citizens United expanded that to corporations. But it may limit contributions. The court saw contributions as a less direct infringement on speech. But even with contributions, the court said that it can only do so to serve a compelling state interest. And the only interest it recognized at the time was to prevent corruption or the appearance of corruption. Not only did the Buckley case establish a difference between expenditures and contributions, but it reaffirmed the notion that any laws restricting spending in elections must serve the government interest of preventing corruption or the appearance of corruption. But, you might say, what exactly does spending in elections have to do with corruption? Here's Berfault. They also then said, what are the justifications for limiting uh, campaign money? And the court said the principal one that we recognize is the, pre- the prevention of corruption and the appearance of corruption. It's not clear whether that's one justification or two, whether corruption and appearance are separate or the same. But people tend to, tend to take them together as the prevention of corruption. Well, the next, next question is, well, what do we mean by corruption? And that's really been debated for the last 40 years. And the court has to some extent seesawed in between a, a narrow definition and a broad definition and Currently, they're taking a very narrow definition of corruption. Uh, the, the dominant definition that the court has used of corruption is what's called a quid pro quo, an exchange. I give you this money in exchange for your doing something for me. And that that would be, that's basically bribery. The court said very hard to prove bribery, but that, so it doesn't, it's not limited to literal bribery, but it's limited to activity that looks like bribery. And the court said, well, that picks up contributions contributions, when you actually give money directly to a candidate, that raises the possibility, the likelihood that there's a quid pro quo that the candidate receives the money, is aware of it, is grateful, and is going to be more likely to do something for the donor later if the candidate wins. Um, There doesn't have to be an outright commitment. Indeed, there is an outright commitment that actually might be illegal as a bribe, uh, but that 
giving a large contribution to a candidate makes the candidate grateful and means the candidate wins. The candidate's going to be particularly attentive to the donor's interests if the candidate, when the candidate holds office. But then the court said, what about expenditures? And there they said something which has been very much criticized since then, but is what is the court's position. The court said an expenditure, if it's independent, in other words, if it's, if it's not prearranged with the candidate and it's not coordinated with the candidate, an actual expenditure by a committee or an individual or corporation that supports this candidate or attacks her opponent, um, if it's really done without consultation with the candidate, the court said that's not likely to be corrupt, that there's not likely to be a quid pro quo. It's less clear that the candidate will feel obligated or indebted to the donor. Um, the, the, the independent spender might uh, hit the wrong notes in his message, might be repeat what the candidate wants, or might actually be emphasizing um, an issue the candidate doesn't want to emphasize. And the court said, we, 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 we don't find a corru- an anti-corruption justification for limiting spending, independent spending. If the spending is coordinated with the candidate, then it's treated like a contribution. So the court's view is that independent spending um, is not corruption. Now let's jump to 1978, when the Supreme Court decided on the case First National Bank of Boston v. Bellotti, which allowed corporations the right to expend without restrictions in ballot propositions. Although Citizens United and the Bellotti courts decided on different issues, a parallel between the cases exists. They both said something similar about corporations. They both said that corporations can bring First Amendment claims, uh, that corporations have speech rights. Uh, Bellotti emphasized the interest not so much of the corporation, but of the listeners. Bellotti was less about whether corporations are people and more about that, that the public, that the voters have an interest in hearing what corporations have to say. And so the, the Bellotti case actually had a very strong emphasis on kind of the listener interest, the voter interest in hearing from corporations. Uh, and Citizens United had a little of that, but had more of the idea of uh, corporations as kind of associations of people, uh, that corporations, whether they're through their shareholders or through their, you know, their, their officers and directors, that the, corp- that the corporations, they may be artificial entities, but that they are, in some sense, associations of people who have an interest in communicating their ideas as well. So there's a little bit of a difference, but they're not inconsistent. Now, fast track to 2010 when the Citizens United Court finally decided that corporations should have the right to freely expend in candidate elections without any restrictions. In other words, corporations now share the same rights as individuals in respect to campaign expenditures. Here's Malbin. The idea of corporations having the same right as natural persons is, frankly, in some ways, strange. Corporations don't have the right to vote. They don't get drafted. They are entities created by positive law. So their rights don't rest on natural rights. So why, after so many years of restricting corporate spending in elections, has the court finally made this change? Much of the reasoning can be ascribed to the ideological shifts in the court over the years. Here's Berfault. Uh, Campaign finance has been an area where ideology has loomed very large. And maybe more so over time, the justices have become more kind of internally consistent. I mean, in the earlier cases, there was a lot more fluidity in some movement and there there you know there 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 were liberals were also concerned about the rights of spending uh the, about the rights of interest groups to spend including because not all interest groups are conservative but i think in the last 10 years or so uh, the court has become 
has, its lines have really hardened uh, in the area of campaign finance. As the court has yet again made up its mind on corporate spending in elections, what does this decision mean? Do these new freedoms given to corporations drastically change the way elections work? And who is really taking advantage of these new spending capabilities? Here's Malbin. What has been a very strong impact is the idea that individuals can make unlimited contributions to entities that make independent expenditures and so forth. Most for-profit corporations do not find it in their economic self-interest to make independent expenditures. And there's not been a large amount of it by for-profit corporations since Citizens United. So if large representatives of big business like Walmart and Exxon weren't running to spend more money in elections after Citizens United, who was? Most of the explosion in independent expenditures come from nonprofit corporations issue in ideological groups. Some from trade associations such as the Chamber of Commerce. The big explosion is coming from ideological individuals who are very wealthy, who are using either their private money or privately held corporations' money, which is in effect their own, using that money to make unlimited contributions. It's not so much, I mean, the political impact that you're seeing, and there's a lot, there's a big political impact, but the political impact you're seeing is is not so much on this idea that for-profit, publicly traded corporations are going to use uh, their wealth to buy up the system, uh, which is the kind of concern that Justice Marshall seemed to be expressing. You are seeing what's clearly a disproportionate impact. You're seeing a, a huge effect from the top 100 donors, but, but it's not quite the impact that people talked about when the decision first came out. Although our elections have not been flooded with money from for-profit corporations, they have been flooded with funds from wealthy individuals attempting to promote their interests. Still to many, the decision resonates throughout society as detrimental to democracy. I think the Citizens United decision stood as a symbol that, as Bernie Sanders might put it, the system is rigged in favor of corporations. On the part of, you might say, the other side of the debate, It's that the system is being taken away from candidates and political parties. This is a level of public attention that has been given to the issue that I have not seen since Watergate. This is an amazing level of public awareness, and there's a lot of energy involved. Uh, But the reaction to it, the reason it's such a big issue, is that uh, many people feel left out. Uh, they feel they feel screwed, uh, and um, frankly, uh, the the way you make a permanent change along those lines, or big change along those lines, is to empower those people. As such a strong symbol of disproportion in our democracy, many public figures have used Citizens United to urge that the system be changed to reduce corporate influence. But what exactly can be done about a Supreme Court decision? If you think about what might happen after, uh, let's say, an election, obviously it'll depend on who gets elected. But if, let's say, Senator Clinton gets elected, she says she wants to reverse Citizens United, and she says that uh, 
she would like to um, put in place a small donor public financing system. In in my view, uh, changing the Constitution to reverse Citizens United would be extremely difficult and would also not get at a key issue. Uh, it would... Um, People who are want to be active in politics and have lots of money will find ways of doing so, whether they do it through direct candidate support or issue speech or other ways. The, the approaches she has suggested, such as small donor public financing, are more about changing the power balance and not just diverting who, who plays. And that's uh, harder for a lot of people to grasp, but this, there is substantial bipartisan support for that. And that's one, that's one possible approach that things might take. Not likely to happen quickly on the federal level, but it is happening in states and localities. Overturning a Supreme Court decision is difficult. And based on the considerable support both sides of this issue receive, change on a federal level doesn't appear to be on the horizon. After the death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, the court is now divided by ideology. Until a new justice is selected, any change to federal precedent is unlikely. That was Stefan Limbo-Stolba talking with Michael Malbin and Richard Berfault. If you like what you hear or want to hear more, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the Google Play Store. Give us a rating while you're there. It actually helps to make more podcasts. For this podcast, Everything Explained, I'm your host, Patrick Garrett.